Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hello there and welcome to Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Glad you could join us today. We've got some great stuff ahead of us. By the way, coming up in the second hour, I would like you to stick around and join me for a conversation with Anthony Davis as well as James Harrigan from the Foundation for Economic Education. These guys are the authors of a remarkable book that I hope will find its way to your bookshelf. And the book is called Cooperation and Coercion, How Busy Bodies Became Busy Bullies and What That Means for Economics and Politics. These guys have a remarkable podcast of their own called Words and Numbers. And again, with the Foundation for Economic Education, which, if I could be so bold, is just a class act and I I think has some of the best content out there that covers a very wide variety of topics, but always, always comes back to the issue of freedom. And that's uh, really kind of the thing that's, uh, if you want to talk about what's on the altar right now, freedom is what's, uh, what's really at stake. And we have uh, we have a lot to discuss in that regard. Again, this is coming up in the next hour. I hope you'll join us for it. Also, because you know I'm kind of into the whole uh, fourth-turning historical cycles, and Jim Quinn has remarkable analysis, I think you're going to enjoy his take on P for Pandemic, the fourth turning, not only talking about the impact that the uh, current pandemic is having, but also on how it is providing cover for opportunistic power seekers. And that is coming up in the next hour as well. This hour, I thought we would start with a question. Did we really have no choice but to shut it all down and to crater the economy? You know, I I know that that's that's the conventional wisdom. And I hear people say this. uh, I I don't go a lot of places anymore, you know, for obvious reasons. We're we're all kind of uh, sheltering ourselves or at least, you know, limiting our social contacts. I I don't like crowds to start with. So this is really not such a terrible thing for me. But it's awful to see what is happening to the economy. And now three of the counties around where I live, Salt Lake County, Summit County and Wasatch County in Utah, all have issued uh, shelter-in-place orders or lockdown orders, which pretty much say, look, if you don't have a good reason to be out, you shouldn't be out. And they're enforcing this to various degrees. We'll talk more about that in, in a few minutes. But the big question is, did it have to be this way? Did we have no other choice? You ask most people, and I, I would bet money that the answer is going to be, well, yeah, we didn't have a choice. This is such a dangerous virus, overwhelmed hospitals, death, destruction, fear. But the truth of the matter, as Paul Rosenberg pointed out here a couple of weeks ago, is for most policymakers, it's not a matter of, well, we had no other choice. It's a matter of we saw no other choice. Because they think in terms of control. They think in terms of one-size-fits-all solutions. They think in terms of top-down planning that this is going to work for everybody. So it's, it's refreshing to see that sometimes there are outliers that... Uh, that come up with solutions that uh, seem to be working, but don't follow that one-size-fits-all approach. Case in point, Sweden has taken its coronavirus strategy at a much more relaxed level. There is no lockdown. And you know what's remarkable? They're not a hotbed of death and infection like uh, some of the other places in Europe. Unlike its immediate neighbors like Denmark, Finland, and Norway, Sweden hasn't closed its borders. It hasn't closed its schools. Neither has it closed what some would call non-essential businesses or banned gatherings of more than two people. 
like you've seen in the UK and in Germany. This is an article from CNBC.com, and I believe uh, Holly Elliott is the author here. And she says, while the rest of Europe imposes severe restrictions on public life and closes borders and businesses, Sweden is taking a more relaxed approach to the coronavirus outbreak. Sweden's response to the outbreak is being overseen largely by the country's public health agency. And it has taken a conspicuously different approach to the coronavirus from its international peers, trusting the public to adopt voluntary, softer measures to delay the spread of the virus. Now, she says this apparently laissez-faire approach has attracted criticism from both within Sweden, from a group of epidemiologists, as well as from other countries which are locking down public life to curb the outbreak. Well, the public health agency's lead epidemiologist and a key figure in Sweden's national response to the coronavirus is Anders Tegnell. He told CNBC that although his country's strategy to tackle the virus was different, the aim was the same. Quote, My view is that basically all European countries are trying to do the same thing. We're trying to slow down the spread as much as possible to keep healthcare and society working. And we've shown some different methods to slow down the spread. This is what he told NBC on Monday. Tegnell added, Sweden has gone mostly for voluntary measures because that's how we're used to working. And we have a long tradition that it works rather well. He said the agency had explained to the population why social distancing was needed And so far, he says, it's been working reasonably well. Okay, let's pause for just a moment. How can this be? I I know that, uh, you know, those who who really, you know, are the, the true believers of statism, the ones who believe that, hey, anything that is not under the direct control of the state is somehow, by definition, out of control, I'm sure they're scoffing. Well, this couldn't be, this could not be happening. And yet there it is. Now, if you contrast this back to the article, Sweden has 3,700 confirmed cases of coronavirus and has recorded 110 deaths. That's according to the latest data from the public health agency. By contrast, Italy, the epicenter of Europe's outbreak, has nearly 100,000 cases and over 10,000 deaths. At least that was according to the latest data on Sunday. Meanwhile, Spain, the second worst hit country in Europe, has close to 80,000 confirmed cases and 6,500 deaths. The UK, considered about uh, two weeks behind Italy in terms of the outbreak, has recorded nearly 20,000 cases and 1,228 deaths from the virus. Now, Tegnell said the incline in infection and death rates in Sweden is less steep than in many countries, and that's exactly what we're trying to achieve. Adding that opinion polls showed the Swedish public were overall in favor of the health agency's approach. Tegnell didn't rule out more stringent measures in Sweden, however. He told NBC, CSNBC, rather, sorry, CNBC, there's so many NBCs here, that if there was a sharp increase in cases, then the government and health agency would have a big discussion on what other measures they might take. But this past weekend, Prime Minister Stefan Löfven said that isolating Stockholm would happen if the outbreak worsens, but that such measures are not currently being discussed. Now, he had previously insisted that successfully combating the spread of the virus was largely dependent on individual behavior. So life carries on. And Sweden hasn't completely diverged from the rest of Europe in a similar way to its neighbors. Sweden's government has advocated working from home, if at all possible, avoiding non-essential travel, and the elderly are advised to avoid social contract. Well, did government really need to tell them that? 
Okay, because I'm just I'm just thinking, you know, maybe some people aren't five-year-old children who need to be advised on, you know, when to stand up, when to sit down, when to wash their hands, and so forth. Uh, oh, by the way, of course, advice to wash their hands regularly has been promoted, so <laughs> they, they do have that. Restaurants, bars, cafes, and nightclubs have been told to offer seated table service only. And as of Sunday, gatherings of more than 50 people had been banned. Initially, the country had suspended gatherings of more than 500 people. It also had closed universities and colleges, but schools with students under 16 years old remain open. As such, compared to elsewhere in Europe, life in Sweden feels eerily normal, Stockholm residents say. Eric, who's a teacher at a school in Stockholm, told CNBC on Sunday, being both an expat and an educator at a secondary school in Stockholm, he said, I feel conflicted. I still need to go into work on a crowded bus to teach my students who are advised to keep coming into school. We're all set up for distant learning, but secondary schools are not closing anytime soon. He added that some colleagues were brushing off concerns about coronavirus, saying it's just the flu. I'm more worried about the start of the pollen season and also referred to the great trust that Swedes have in their public institutions. Tom is an Englishman who works in construction in Stockholm and said he was impressed that the country remained so calm. He said, besides the obvious social media influences, I think they would have enforced harsher if they would have enforced harsher initiatives like other countries, there would have been more panic. He said, people have been good in accommodating small changes in their lives to help stop the spread and have been very helpful to each other. To be honest, Sweden has behaved exactly as I would have expected the Swedes to behave. So isn't that something? Restrictions or not, you know, their economy is still going to take a hit. Last week, uh, Sweet Bank uh, forecast that the economy would contract by 4% in 2020. And I'm not saying, hey, these guys have the only way to deal with it, but can we at least acknowledge that there is a place in the world that is doing something other than telling people to, uh, you know, pull in like a frightened turtle and just to hunker down in fear? And it seems to be working. I don't know. I, I don't know what the what the correct answer is here, but I'm pretty sure that the wholesale destruction of the economy and, and the incredible restriction on people's ability to live their lives according to how they wish to mitigate the risks in their lives, I don't think it's working so well. And I think the panic that it's engendering is actually more damaging than what the virus itself is doing. That's just my opinion, and you're welcome to it. This is Loving Liberty. We'll be back just the other side of these messages. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. Thank you so much for being a part of our program today. I hope you find this information informative, useful, uplifting. I mean, come on, it's possible, right? We, <laughs> we can always find the bright spot. Uh, but most of all, I, I really appreciate, uh, for, the, for those of you who find that this is, this is good information, or at least this is something that adds value to your life, please feel free to share this podcast with your friends, with your relatives, with other people who are looking for a source of truth and light. Again, I'm not the source of truth or light. I'm simply, uh, I'm a, a conduit, if you will, that's uh, passing on what uh, what I feel are, are some of the better sources out there that may be overlooked. And I want you to know, I, I seriously spend a lot of my day looking for good, solid, 
different and innovative takes on the passing scene. So I was sharing with you the uh, article from CNBC about Sweden's approach to the coronavirus. And I don't know if it, if it strikes you as, you know, well, you know, isn't Sweden supposed to be a socialist country? And I mean, I've certainly heard that before. You know, well, their government is leaning more socialist and whatnot. Yet there doesn't seem to be that uh, that almost rabid desire to assume control over people. And as a result of their um, softer approach, making recommendations and trusting that people will uh, will mitigate the risks, you know, according to their own priorities. It seems to be working. Stockholm residents say, yeah, there's been a decline in activity in the city, but social life continues. The uh, teacher, Eric, that they cited in the article says, you know, Friday evening when I went on my way home, I saw loads of groups of both young and middle aged people hanging out on one of the central squares in Stockholm. And he said it amazed me whether the Swedish strategy is based on science or reluctance to limit people's freedom or just on trust that citizens will do what is needed isn't clear to him. But I think there may be some kind of a connection here in the sense that citizens get the government or I'm sorry, governments get the citizens that they deserve. If you treat your citizenry like a bunch of backwards children who don't have sense enough to come in from the rain. That's the kind of citizenry you're going to get. That's the kind of people that you and believe me, some politicians want this. But not all. On the other hand, if you allow people to make their best choices You're going to find the people who are most concerned about contracting coronavirus or any other risk, you know, eating too many cheeseburgers, whatever it may be, are going to take the steps necessary to uh, to avoid unnecessary risk. But somehow we've got it in our heads that, well, no, everybody's going to be stupid. And if just one person is stupid, the whole society is doomed. That's not the case. And I go back to what I've said earlier, if that really were the case, if it just one person being stupid, you know, was enough, we would have our entire society locked down. And basically, we would all be waiting for guys in military hazmat uniforms and suits to come deliver our our supplies to us so that we could survive. You don't see that. You don't see the gas station shut down. You don't see even the liquor stores are open. So I guess we we know what constitutes an essential business. What a strange, strange time to be alive. And by the way, the Swedish government, uh, just so you don't think that, uh, well, Brian's really on board with everything they're doing. Um, look, I think that every government right now is is panicking in terms of well, what are we going to do in terms of what happens economically when you start scaling things back and people who want to work aren't allowed to work. So the Swedish government is, is of course, stepping up to uh, provide stimulus for its economy as well. They're expecting unemployment to reach 10% by summer. Uh, Sweet Bank said in its report released last Wednesday, most sectors of the Swedish economy are bleeding. They said in the services sector, several companies are completely without demand, abandoned as cautious households have gone home. Manufacturing is struggling with broken supply chains and falling demand. And the Swedish government now has said that its aim is to limit the spread of the infection in the country and its impact on critical services. And it's even introduced some measures to limit the economic impact of the virus. Just last week, it announced an aid package for small and medium sized enterprises, saying it will guarantee 70 percent of new loans banks provide to companies that are experiencing financial difficulty due to the virus. It also temporarily reduced Social Security contributions and introduced company rent support. So, yeah, there's 
there's still, you know, that, that tendency to want to intervene. But uh, I don't know. If you want to look at what, how extreme it can get, look at our own government here in the United States, which is, is now casually throwing around, well, we may need to add another couple trillion dollars to the next stimulus bill. I remember when it was a big deal when the national debt went up over a trillion dollars and then two trillion. And when it got to nine trillion, people were like, this is this is insane. How could we allow something like this to happen? And now, I mean, 23 trillion was, I think, the last official number that I had heard. Um, The sky's the limit. And the sad thing is that doesn't come without some some pretty uh, significant costs in terms of your soundness of your currency and so forth. We're all going to pay a price. Not to be a negative Nelly, but uh, let's let's face facts. What politicians are doing with shoveling more money at it, uh, creating money out of thin air. It's not going to help. It may in the short term give a few people warm fuzzies, but it's not going to solve the problem. Now, let's talk about something a little bit brighter. Have you heard about Dr. Vladimir Zelenko? Some people have, many have not, but um, I'm curious why this isn't more of a story. Because Dr. Zelenko has now treated 699 coronavirus patients with 100% success using hydroxychloroquine sulfate, zinc, and z Interesting. Azithromycin. Last Wednesday... TechStartups.com published the success story of Dr. Vladimir Zelenko. Now, he's a board-certified family practitioner in New York. After he successfully treated 350 coronavirus patients with 100% success using a cocktail of drugs, hydroxychloroquine in combination with azithromycin and also zinc sulfate, Dr. Zelenko said he saw the symptom of shortness of breath resolved within four to six hours after treatment. Now he has provided another update saying he has successfully treated 699 COVID-19 patients in New York. In an exclusive interview with former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani, Dr. Vladimir Zelenko shared the results of his latest study, which showed that out of his 699 patients treated, zero patients died, zero patients had to be intubated, and there were only four hospitalizations. Now wait till you hear the cost. The whole treatment cost only $20 over a period of five days with 100% success. And just for the record, he defined success as not to die. Dr. Zelenko first posted his uh, Facebook video message last week calling on President Trump to advise the country they should be taking this medication. Now, there are many other success stories about hydroxychloroquine across the country. Last week, Dr. William Grace, an oncologist at Lenox Hill Hospital in New York City, said they've not had a single death in their hospital because of hydroxychloroquine. He said, thanks to hydroxychloroquine, we've not had a death in our hospital. Now, in a study conducted by the National Institute of Health, they've also confirmed some of Dr. Zelenko's findings. Rather, The study by the NIH showed that zinc supplementation in decreases the morbidity of lower respiratory tract infection in pediatric patients in the developing world. And a second study also conducted by the National Institute of Health titled In Vitro Antiviral Activity and projection of optimized dosing design of hydroxychloroquine for the treatment of severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2 also showed that hydroxychloroquine was more potent in killing the virus off in vitro, that is in the test tube, and not in the body. I've got a link to this, and there's a nice video that's attached that explains this, but 
Why are we not hearing more of this? Why are we not hearing a positive bit of news and instead just hearing more and more? In fact, a lot of the the different news outlets, particularly so-called mainstream outlets, seem to be focused entirely on, you know, Trump is failing in his handling of this as if he's supposed to be coming up with the cure himself. Um, Who was it? Uh, Trevor Noah that talked about what we are in the situation of is like the children of an alcoholic father left to raise ourselves. I guess for some people, the the temptation to just wax political is too strong to resist. But I wanted you to know there is some good news. and We might as well acknowledge that that it's there. This is Loving Liberty. We'll be back after this. All right, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Glad you could join me. Please hold your calls until the second hour of the program. Again, I've got some special guests joining me. Great commentary from Jim Quinn as well, uh, laying this out against the uh, the backdrop of the fourth turning, which, as you may know, is uh, something I find more than just a little bit interesting. So I got a couple of very interesting articles that came to me. I want to give a shout out to my friend Eric for, for shooting me uh, this article from the L.A. Times. Here's the headline. Coronavirus coup. As outbreak grows, authoritarians around the world seize the moment. And I got to tell you, this has been one of the deepest concerns that I have have uh, felt and have expressed here on this podcast and on this broadcast is, uh, you know, what is happening in terms of the, the people who are grabbing power hand over fist and just milking this crisis for every bit of advantage that they can. Laura King is a staff writer for the L.A. Times. This is what she has to say. She says to battle a spreading pandemic, democracies around the globe are turning to tools like emergency proclamations, abrupt lockdowns and enhanced public surveillance. But so are the world's autocrats. And analysts say the burgeoning outbreak is providing cover for some audacious power grabs. Alarmed critics have given the phenomenon a scathing nickname, coronavirus coup. Now, here are some examples. In fact, uh, Hungary, where Parliament on Monday granted Prime Minister Viktor Orban sweeping new authority to rule by decree for an unlimited period of time. Orban, already engaged in a systematic campaign to consolidate his powers and stifle political opposition, cited the need for heightened powers as a way to aggressively fight the outbreak. That sound familiar at all? I don't know. I think in Berlin, 1933, after the burning of the Reichstag, I just need this enabling act. Give me the power. I will solve the problem. I don't know. Is it Godwin's law to point out other places where those emergency powers were uh, assumed and then never given back? Sarah Repucci, who heads the analytics department at Freedom House, a Washington-based watchdog group that for years has documented the worldwide erosion of democracy, says especially in weak democracies, this is accelerating trends we were already seeing. And she cited Orban as among the autocrats using the virus as an excuse to accelerate their repressive agendas. From Israel to Brazil, from the Philippines to Chile, there are telltale signs of autocratic intent behind executive actions ostensibly spurred by coronavirus. At least that's according to analysts. One is when when measures giving a leader more authority are open-ended rather than being linked to an easing of the outbreak. It's a blank check. 
Another warning sign, according to analysts, is when newly imposed government measures are specifically engineered to restrict or resist oversight by courts or lawmakers or appear to have little direct connection to actual efforts to halt the spread of infection. Good example here in Israel, the coronavirus outbreak came amid political deadlock and at a perilous moment for Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who's under criminal indictment on charges of bribe taking, fraud and breach of trust. Now, he denies any wrongdoing. And yet, while launching a decisive early campaign to contain the virus's spread, Netanyahu and his allies put off the scheduled start of his trial by closing the courts handed the government unprecedented surveillance powers without parliamentary oversight and blocked the convening of the new Knesset or parliament in which the political opposition garnered a majority in March elections. Then through canny maneuvering, Netanyahu took advantage of a fractured opposition and managed to get his chief rival, Benny Gantz, to agree to serve under him. The prime minister, the country's longest serving leader, said the severity of the crisis demanded unity. Gantz, a former army chief, employed a classic military metaphor to explain his about face, saying he did not to be the, he did not want to be the one who refused to help carry a stretcher off the battlefield. Now, columnist Yossi Verder wrote in his Monday uh, Heretz newspaper column, the word magician is too weak to describe this stunning achievement, which isn't solely a result of his political abilities. The pandemic's arrival in Israel, Verder wrote, was a matter of inconceivably perfect timing for Netanyahu, despite critics labeling his machinations a coronavirus coup. So the article says, like the virus itself, power grabs can take on the quality of a contagion, especially when established democracies offer little in the way of pushback. Now, closer to home, I can think of an example. This, uh, this I just became aware of uh, day before yesterday. You know, Virginia has been in a pretty serious state of turmoil since Democrats achieved um, they achieved superiority in numbers in their uh, legislative body, as well as the governor's mansion. Um, I think they, they have a pretty good lock on control of that state. So when Governor Ralph Northam, also known as the Coon Man for his blackface performances, when he uh, announced that, well, we're going to extend the lockdown in Virginia until June 10th. Do you suppose it was just a coincidence that the uh, Republican primary is slated for June 9th? Kind of an interesting, uh, wow, what a what a remarkable coincidence. Strange how that works out in favor of one political party and not another. Back to the article. R. Daniel Kellerman, a professor of political science and law at Rutgers University, pointing to the muted European Union response to Orban's move, said it's a dangerous signal to aspiring autocrats as to what they can get away with during this crisis. In Washington, the Hungarian leader's actions drew some sharp criticism on Capitol Hill. Representative Elliot L. Engel, the New York Democrat who chairs the House Foreign Affairs Committee, called it the latest overreach by Orban. Such a serious affront to democracy anywhere is outrageous, and particularly within a NATO ally and EU member, Engel wrote in a statement. But the White House, where Orban was warmly received by Trump less than a year ago, said nothing publicly. In the Philippines, President Rodrigo Duterte, let me see if I got that's not his name, Duterte, notorious for his extrajudicial executions at the hands of death squads, has been given broad emergency powers to confront the health crisis, although lawmakers balked at a provision that would have let him take over 
private businesses. Even so, rights groups were alarmed by the expanded scope of presidential authority. And there were growing fears that some leaders in Latin America could use coronavirus containment as a pretext to keep a tight lid on dissent. In Chile, President Sebastian Piñera declared a 90-day state of catastrophe, which was likely to suppress the last vestiges of massive street protests over economic inequality that ignited there in late 2019. In Bolivia where President Evo Morales was forced to resign and go into exile amid massive anti-government demonstrations last year, presidential elections deemed crucial to restoring stability have been postponed because of COVID-19. Kind of makes you wonder if you could see something similar here. They wouldn't postpone the election, would they? Hmm. By the way, as the pandemic leapt from China to other parts of the world, Trump initially played down the threat, as did some autocratic leaders with whom he's demonstrated an affinity. As late as last week, Turkish President uh, Erdogan was putting an optimistic face on the outbreak's course. Erdogan said, by breaking the speed of the virus's spread in two to three weeks, we will get through this period with as little damage as possible. Now, his government's been accused of obscuring the scope of infections and where they've taken place. Another leader who considers himself a kindred spirit of Trump's is encountering political headwinds over an initially dismissive approach to the pandemic. That would be Brazilian President Bolsonaro, who at one point referred to COVID-19 as a little flu and has repeatedly contradicted the guidelines of his health ministry, calling on people to return to work and attend large gatherings. But like Trump... His approach has proved polarizing. So for weeks, tens of thousands of Brazilians in big cities have leaned out their windows each night, banging pots to protest against the president. Bolsonaro supporters, meanwhile, drive through the streets in cars draped in the national flag, honking horns to show their support for the president and their anger at business closures. Russian President Vladimir Putin was yet another Trump ally who kept his own coronavirus counsel. But unlike Trump, who's placed himself front and center at briefings on the crisis, Putin has let subordinates do most of the talking about the outbreak's course. As it often does, Moscow has taken heavy-handed measures to control the spread of information regarding the pandemic, setting stiff penalties for news reports or social media posts contradicting official accounts. Russia has so far reported nearly 2,500 cases. That's a number that many international experts believe is artificially low. Putin suffered something of a messaging mishap last week when he visited a hospital and was photographed in full biohazard gear. But beforehand, with no protective gear, he shook hands with the hospital's chief doctor, Denis Protsenko, who has now tested positive for the virus, according to news reports. By Tuesday, the Kremlin hasn't said whether Putin had been tested. So, I mean, we're talking about this on the on the international level, but let's face it. It's the, the, the seize for power, the opportunity that this provides for those who are looking for power is, uh, is right down to the local level. And we're still faced with a question. How much are you going to go along with? Now, I can't answer for you. I'm not sure I can even answer for myself at this point. But I know if this goes unanswered at some level, it's going to become the new normal. And what we consider freedom is going to be nothing more than a fond memory if we allow it to move forward as it's doing right now. We'll be back after these messages.
Hey, once again, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Glad you could join me. Just got a very interesting text from my friend uh, Eric Peters, who we had on the show yesterday. Um, you know, he, I got to admit, uh, Eric is, I think Eric is a man among men in terms of his uh, standing up here. Uh, showed me, he just sent me a couple of a couple of images and it's just a, uh, an image of a, I guess it's an envelope from his insurance company. Important insurance policy information open immediately, blah, blah, blah. Uh, to which uh, Eric just wrote on the outside, government says I can't work. I say I can't pay. Corona. <laughs> He's sending it back to the insurance company and telling him, sorry, you know, I know you guys want your tribute, but uh, if I can't work, I can't pay until, uh, you know, government says it's okay. Interesting. I, I, I'm just curious. You know, I'm not saying everybody ought to do this, but that kind of uh, kind of turns things around. I wonder if the insurance companies will be going to government lobbying. Hey, 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 we already uh, you know worked with you to make it mandatory that everybody carry our coverage. But now they're saying that uh, you won't let them work and we're having trouble extracting our money from them. And anyway, uh, the, the, the thing just gets more interesting by the day. Richard Ebling, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research, has a remarkable article and essay that I'm going to have posted. I'll have links to all of the things I've discussed in this hour of the show. They'll be in the show notes at lovingliberty.net when you pull up this episode of the podcast. Hour one, April 1st, 2020. This is not an April Fool's joke. He asks, what comes after the coronavirus? Freedom or despotism? I'm going to share a couple of excerpts here because this is the this really is the key question. The key question isn't what else can we do to minimize deaths? I know it's scary. And yes, there are people dying, but look, the bodies aren't stacking up like cordwood at this point. Someone is milking our fears and taking advantage and and the result that we're going to see long after this crisis has passed is that our freedoms will be diminished. Richard Ebling says the coronavirus crisis that has enveloped the world has brought about calls for society and economy-wide action on the part of governments that has been matched by the imposing of radical shutdowns and compulsory mass quarantining as tens of millions of people are told not to go to work and to stay at home instead. Governments have also been redirecting essential medical and related supplies in some cases In the United States, direct governmental commands for companies and industries to change what and how they produce has been declared to be in the executive hands of the president of the United States when it is deemed necessary to meet the needs of the health crisis. So, for instance, President Trump's recent order for automobile manufacturer General Motors to shift its production potentials to the manufacturing of ventilators for those stricken severely by the virus under the authority of a Korean War era piece of legislation is merely an especially high-profile example of the central planning powers that governments have been asserting the right to implement. He says, fundamental to everything that governments have been doing is the presumption that the crisis can only be handled and solved through a comprehensive, comprehensive system of political command and control. And the chorus of voices making this case, along with their own proposals as to what should be the ingredients of the plan, has been deafening. So a couple of examples here that he gives of the deafening chorus of voices for central planning. John Cassidy, writing for The New Yorker on March 28th, insists the most effective stimulus policy is doing whatever it takes to get some control over the virus's trajectory. 
whatever it takes. Wow. He praised the bipartisanship of Democrats and Republicans in successfully passing the $2 trillion spending package to stabilize the economy in the face of various levels of government ordering people to stop working and therefore to slow down or stop the flow of various goods and services from which the streams of income depended on supplies being produced to meet market demands. Over at Project Syndicate, Harvard University professor Carmen M. Reinhardt says the lockdown and distancing policies that are saving lives also carry an enormous cost and insists clearly this is a whatever-it-takes moment for large-scale, outside-the-box fiscal and monetary policies. Also writing for Project Syndicate, economists Roman Friedman, New York University, and Edmund S. Phelps from Columbia University, and also a Nobel Prize winner, declared that the possibility of millions dying as the economy is crippled justifies substantially scaling up the extent and scope of government action. Citizens and government should be prepared to pay what might appear to be an extravagantly high premium. Oh, my word. So the planning of political paternalism is well underway. And if we we, we just need the right central plan is what these people are saying. If we just get the, the, the details just the right way. Now, Richard Ebling says, of course, others are already looking beyond the coronavirus crisis to what lessons will have been learned for enlightened and rational intervention to guide human conduct away from its just two human follies and foibles. James Kirkup, the director of the London-based Social Market Foundation, asks, will the pandemic kill off libertarianism? Listen to this. He criticizes rational choice theory in economics because it assumes that human beings are rational calculating machines who disproportionately weigh the implied costs and benefits from their actions, including the knowable and objective probabilities of the risks from following one course of action instead of another. Then each of the social and market agents makes the more or less correct decision in what to do and what directions, in what directions, rather. But when James Kirkup looks around, he finds that real human beings operate very far from such a benchmark of rational conduct and decision making. Every reasonable person fairly early on, once the implications of coronavirus were publicly known, should have stopped going to pubs or their local gym. They should have no longer socialized in common areas like public parks or in the shoulder to shoulder everyday marketplace. Now, Richard Ebling says people would just not do the reasonable and rational things to ensure their own health and safety as well as all those around them, including friends and family members. The critics of traditional economic theory were once more shown to be right. People are not rational calculators of the reasonable courses of action to follow. They're short-sighted in their thinking. They're illogical, eliminate estimators, rather, of dangers and risks to themselves and others, and therefore they follow misguided notions of their self-interest that not only harms themselves, but the rest of society as well. Here's how Kirkup puts it. If people aren't rational about a situation that risks tens of thousands of lives and deep damage to our society and economy, how much weight should we put on the idea of rational actors in the future? Put another way, once you've closed pubs and banned people from going outside, imposing, say, a tax to deter people from consuming sugary drinks is going to seem like a very small thing indeed. Ah, there it is. Camel's nose under the tent. So Richard Ebling says we have a very interesting intellectual and ideological twist of fate. For more than 150 years, critics of the market disdained the economist's emphasis on individual choice and pursuit of personal gain, especially reflected in the businessman's quest for profit. 
These critics insisted there was more to life than self-interest and material betterment, that man was a social animal connected with others outside of just himself that transcended personal profit and loss. Now we find the latest generation of critics of the free market, uh, the argument turned around with it being said precisely because humans aren't rational economic calculators of cost and benefit and of personal and social gains and harms, the government must radically intervene in various and sundry ways to make people's actions consistent with conduct that would reflect such rational economic calculations. If only human beings could be trusted with the freedom to act in such ways. Now, I understand there's a lot of economic language there, but the bottom line is your individual rights, your God-given natural rights, the ones that protect you from government abuse of power must be surrendered in favor of what the collective wants or more appropriately, what a few elites at the top of the collective know is best for you. This is a lengthy essay, and I'll have it posted. I would encourage you should you should really read this for yourself. Um, Ebling talks about the hubris of paterno, of political paternalism. He talks about the unintended consequences of human action and history. Some great, very well read historical um, perspective on this, and of course the imperfect would be paternalists who are really just closet despots. You only have to understand how government works versus how the market works to see that there there is nothing voluntary about how government imposes things because it has force at its disposal. So if you want to allow people to use localized knowledge of time and place to make their decisions, you can't have government making all those choices for them. He talks about short-circuiting the system with the price system with controls. We've already seen this. Bottom line is We're being told freedom doesn't work. I don't believe this for a moment. And Richard Ebling makes the case that liberty remains the best means of saving and bettering mankind. So the question you and I have to answer is, are you going to believe those experts who are telling you that you can't be trusted to be free? Or are you going to stand up and tell them, I'm too busy to be taking orders right now? I really think that's the choice that's playing out before us. This is Loving Liberty. 